When people are stressed, we tend to fall back into unhealthy habits. It really impacts the way that we uh, like live our life. It worsens our physical and mental well-being. Like 46% reported that they ate too much or ate unhealthily due to stress. And nearly 30% of people report that they started drinking alcohol or increased their drinking when they felt stress. And 16% reported that they started smoking or increased their smoking. We fall into unwanted habits because our resilience is less, our emotional regulation is less, and we're wanting to feel better. Welcome to the Eat, Live and Move podcast by Miyagi, a space where we bring you the latest science-backed conversations, expert insights and practical tips relating to all things health and wellness. I'm Dr. Gina Cleo. I am your personal habit change expert. And I'm Dr. Ross Walker, a cardiologist and preventative health expert. Together with our 60 plus years of collective experience, we're on a mission to help you to improve your health and transform your habits so that you can eat, live and move better one episode at a time without the fluff or the fads. Now, for those of you who tuned into last week's episode, you'll know that today is part two of our mini series on mental health. We're going to be taking a deeper dive into just how much lifestyle can improve our mental wellness and alleviate feelings of depression and anxiety. If you haven't listened to part one yet, which is episode 18, what are you waiting for? Get that into your ears. We have covered so much goodies like in that episode, lots of information on nutrition and exercise, really taking a closer look at the research and exactly how these lifestyle changes improve our mental health. Today, we're going to shift our focus into two other elements that are just as important in managing mental health, and they are sleep and stress management, both of which Dr. Ross and I are super passionate about, not just for mental health, but also for general health and wellness, and of course, improving our heart health. And the reason that we're talking about mental health is because, as we mentioned in the last episode, mental health is something that it affects so many people across the world. So just to recap on some of the statistics from last week, we learned that depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide and is a major contributor of the global burden of disease as per the World Health Organization. Now in Australia, the data was collected and released a couple of years ago that showed that 43% of people that are aged between 16 and 85 years had experienced a mental health disorder at some stage throughout their life, which is equivalent to about eight and a half million people. So it's a lot of people. We know that the world economy is impacted by $2.5 trillion each year due to poor mental health. And that cost is projected to rise to $6 trillion. I would just say million because trillion is just so not even a word I say very often but it's $6 trillion by the year 2030. But what we're also seeing is that only sort of 10 to 25% of people that do experience depression are actually seeking support by way of therapy. And that could be because of lack of finances, it could be lack of trained doctors, or the stigma that is associated with depression. So like we said, adopting lifestyle changes like good nutrition, regular exercise, as well as getting lots of good quality sleep and managing stress 
are all super important. There's such important ways to help improve our mental well-being. In addition to, of course, seeking psychological support or trialing medications, if that is what your healthcare provider has recommended. So first off, I reckon we start with sleep. You guys know, if you've been listening to any of my content anywhere, you know that I love sleep. I'm like passionate about sleep. And we aren't going to go into the crazy nitty gritty details around sleep because we did that in episode 10. So if you're interested in that, jump over to episode 10 after this one and listen to that one. But Dr. Dr. Ross, Dr. Dross, I went to say Ross and doctor at the same time. What I mean to say is, Dr. Ross, can you tell us a little bit about why sleep is so important for our mental well-being and the impacts of sleep deprivation? Yeah, well, sleep is one of the one of my five keys of being healthy, of course. It's crucial for our overall well-being. Uh, its importance extends well beyond just physical rest. Getting adequate and quality sleep is essential for maintaining optimum mental health. And there's now robust evidence uh, similarly supporting that sleep is critical to not only our physical health, but our mental health. Poor or insufficient sleep has been found to markedly increase our negative emotional responses to stressors and to decrease positive emotions as well. Now, insomnia uh, may be a symptom of psychiatric disorders like anxiety and depression, but it's still the other way around. It's now recognised that insomnia and all the other sleep problems, and, and this is quite disturbing, but 30% of adults will experience some degree of insomnia. And this in itself may also contribute to the onset of and worsening of mental health problems, such as things like depression, anxiety, and, and sometimes strangely and tragically, even suicidal ideations. So here are some of the reasons why sleep is important for mental health and the negative impacts uh, that you get from sleep deprivation. And it's not just about the amount of time that you sleep. It's really important to look at the quality of your sleep whilst you're asleep, but also the regularity of your sleep as well. So people have focused a lot on, on time. So they say you need somewhere between seven to eight hours of sleep per night, but you also need to have regular sleep. Go to bed at the same time in the evening wake up at the same time in the morning within about an hour of each thing. So you shouldn't be going to bed one night at nine o'clock and the next night at midnight. That's just nuts. And people shouldn't say, oh, look, I'll, I'll, I'll keep regular sleep hours and then I'll sleep in on the weekend and, and try to, to make up out my sleep debt. It doesn't just doesn't work, work like does that. No. I actually read so, a study recently, Ross, where it had like all the different sleep hygiene tips that we, you know, that we hear. And the yep. number one thing that it recommended that had really objective benefits for our sleep was regular sleep routine was going yeah. to bed waking up at the same time including on weekends yep so yeah i love that you're bringing that up yep so here are some of the reasons why it's bad to have bad sleep one is emotional regulation so sleep really helps regulate your emotions your mood and lack of sleep can make you irritable give you mood swings and and also of course increase your susceptibility to stress when some sort of stress happens in your life, and please put up your hands if no stress ever happens in your life. Then stress and anxiety. Sleep deprivation uh, can contribute to heightened stress levels and increased anxiety. And of course, the brain's ability to manage stress is compromised when we don't get enough rest. Psychiatric disorders. Chronic sleep deprivation is associated with an increased risk for developing all forms of psychiatric uh, illnesses, such as 
depression, anxiety, and all the other things that happen in in that sphere, and hormonal imbalance as well, because our hormones in everybody are quite variable. This is why if you have a blood test for a hormone level and it shows one thing one day, you don't overreact to it, because it could be just what your hormones are doing right at that moment. But you want to keep pretty balanced hormones as well as you can, and one of the ways to do that is to get good sleep, and it's really essential good sleep for regulating your hormones, including those hormones that affect stress, appetite and growth. And sleep sleep deprivation can lead to hormone imbalances and contribute to a whole lot of different health issues. So Ross, what you're talking about is, is like a cycle here where it sounds yeah. like hormone like a hormone imbalance can impact our sleep and then lack of sleep can impact hormone balance. Yeah. And and all of the above. If you have a psychiatric disorder, that can impact your sleep your sleep can impact on a psychiatric disorder. So it is a bit of a vicious circle if you get into bad sleeping habits, and that's what's really important. And also your thinking, your attention, your concentration, all of these things are affected by bad sleep. And we know that that people who are really worried about exams and they're not getting enough sleep, they don't perform as well. So it's that's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'd say that the time that I had the worst sleep of my life, I would definitely say it was a period of insomnia, was a few years ago when I was freezing my eggs through IVF and I was put on this medication that put me in an induced menopause for three months. Oh my Lord. I was pretty much up the whole time. It was awful because of all the things, right? It was a change in my hormones, a dramatic change in my hormones. It was keeping me awake. And there was nothing that I could do that helped me get sleep for that time until I got off the medication and then I was able to finally get some rest. But that was literally, I think it was the hardest period of my life because without sleep, I couldn't emotionally regulate as much. I wasn't myself at all. I wasn't exercising because I was so tired. I was craving carbohydrates all day. Like I just wanted to live on bread and croissants and danishes and I had no interest in even caring about greens. I was like, spinach, that looks like an absolute effort to chew through that. So I'm just going to have this white bread. It was, and it's so not me, but it was just the lack of sleep. But I think, I think from a medical viewpoint, that's an important point. There are many people who are listening to this who are on a variety of medications for different things, some of them necessary, possibly in some cases, some not unnecessary. So I'll, I'll pick on my area in cardiology. In, in the US, one in three people over the age of 45 are taking a statin drug to lower their cholesterol. And the statins, in, in many cases, 20, 30% of people taking statins can have a degree of insomnia taking the statin. So I say to my patients, if you really need a statin, make sure you take the longer-acting statins, resuvastatin or atorvastatin, in the morning, don't take them before you go to bed. I saw a man yesterday in my practice who was getting really poor quality sleep, but he was taking his 20 milligrams of resuvastatin just before he went to sleep. So I think your point about that is important. If people are having sleep issues, really speak to their doctor about the medications they're on as well, because just a simple adjustment of those medications may help them sleep better. So I think we will focus now on the, the actual evidence that poor sleep can cause issues. So one, one major study showed, for example, that people who suffer insomnia, and as I said, 30% of the population have a degree of insomnia, 10 to 17 times 
more likely than those people who don't have insomnia to have clinically significant levels of depression, anxiety. Uh, if, if, if you look at that, so 10 times for anxiety, 17 times for depression. Another meta, well, it's, 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 it, it's incredibly significant. Um, when you say something doubles your risk, that's big. When we're say, saying it, it 10 times your risk, 17 times your risk. Um, a, another meta-analysis of 21 studies showed that people with insomnia at baseline had to double the risk of developing depression at follow-up compared with people who didn't experience it. So some evidence 17 times, some evidence two times, but whatever, what we're saying, the, the, the research shows clearly that there's a link between insomnia and mental health disorders. And, um, and although research most commonly studies association between the common mental health disorders, depression, anxiety, there's also evidence that sleeping is associated with a variety of other mental health issues. For example, poor sleep's been associated with post-traumatic stress. And I think many mental health issues are precipitated by stress anyhow. Um, eating disorders, uh, a lot of the psychoses. So for people who don't really understand this, with mental health, you have more of the neurotic disorders and then you've got the psychotic disorders where you're out of touch with reality. And that, that's things like schizophrenia and, and severe mania and, and problems like that, severe bipolar depression. So I think it's important that people understand that there are different levels of, of mental health issues, but all of them can be related to poor sleep. Yeah, it's so wild. You know, you're sharing these pretty dramatic statistics, Ross. Yet, I don't know too many people that really prioritize their sleep. Like my friends think that I am super neurotic because I'm like, guys, got to leave, got to go back to bed. Like I am just like so like particular with my sleep routine. I think I shared on the sleep podcast how I was traveling through Amsterdam with my best friend and we were sharing an Airbnb and she was laughing at me at all the little rituals that I did to get myself to sleep and make sure I was in bed on time. <laughs> like not turn on all the lights and not have caffeine too late in the day. And, but I just, you know, I thought this is the most important thing that I could do with my health. Why wouldn't I prioritize it? You know, what do you find in your clinic, Ross? Well, before I say that, I must say we'd expect you to do it because you are the world yeah. habit expert. So you're getting into all <laughs> these habits. No, but I, I find this in my clinic. So, so many people come in with sleep issues related to their physical health, related to their mental health. So uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting. And there's so many tips that we can implement for better sleep, yeah. and they don't have to be too hard. And you said the main one before, which was trying to get to bed and waking up at similar times of the day, trying not to change that similar time by an hour or more. So yeah. I normally go to bed at like 8.30, don't judge me, but I will try not to go to bed any later than 9.30, if yeah. I really don't have to, and it's not oftentimes I don't have well, to. Well, can I make a couple of points there? I think, for, firstly, some of our sleep is genetically primed. So 70% of people have the gene to be larks, which is exactly what you said, go to bed early, wake up early. But 30% are night owls, go to bed late, wake up late. And the night owls don't fit, really fit in too well in this society because our society is geared for the larks. We start work at nine, which means most people have to get up six, seven o'clock to get ready to go to work. Um, and, and so therefore, the people who, who sleep, go to sleep around 10-ish, wake up around six-ish are the larks. But the night owls, they, they want to get up at nine, 10 o'clock and go to bed at uh, about midnight. So, so we, first, you've got to find out what your genes are priming you towards. 
as you say, that sleep regularity is vital. Also, make sure you get that time. Don't cut your sleep back. You can't cut back on sleep. It's really bad for your health. I mean, we all hear the stories about Winston Churchill that only needed to sleep four hours a night, and he lived till he was 91. But Winston Churchill was one of the, the incredible outliers. Leonardo da Vinci allegedly um, used to sleep for 20 minutes every two hours. I mean, but, but that that's allegedly, who knows? No, we didn't have a sleep omnitum uh, monitoring his sleep back at, back in those days. But but these are the sort of stories. But most of us aren't like that. 95 to 98% of people need that seven to eight hours of sleep to get good mental health, to get good physical health. Also, sleep in a cool, dark room. That's really important. You know, get, get the lights out. Get all the electronics out of your bedroom. The bedroom is for two things and two things only. One is for a thing called sleeping. Another one is for that wonderful activity some of us get to do before sleeping and for no other reason at all. So get all electronics out of the bedroom. So And, and also, you mentioned before, things like caffeine. Do, don't have caffeine after about 2 or 3 o'clock. And also, also really importantly, don't, don't see alcohol as a sedative. Alcohol might get you off to sleep, but it completely destroys your sleeping patterns. Yeah. And then regular exercise, like we spoke about in our last episode. And on your point with limiting screens or not having screens in the bedroom, I think this is such an important point. And one of the main reasons why people are now sleep procrastinating, that's like a thing in research now. We're essentially putting sleep off because we want to watch one more episode or we're scrolling on our phones. And I think it's it's become a really common habit. It's actually the most common unwanted habit is spending too much time on our screens. So my top tip with this is don't have your screen next to you and depend on your willpower to not scroll. You will scroll. Most of us will. So put, I have a no phone zone in my bedroom. I just don't have any sort of screens in my room. And it makes such a difference. I charge my phone in a different room and if the alarm goes off, I can still hear it. I can run into the ensuite and grab it if I need to. I don't normally need an alarm. But yeah, screens really limit it. So I've actually got a little sleep reminder on my phone and it buzzes an hour before my bedtime. So it goes off at 7.30 and that's when my screens get turned off for the day. And it's a game changer. Well, I, I basically, my phone goes into sleep mode at 10.15 and doesn't come on again until 7.15. So people can't call me, contact me, send me emails or do anything between those times. Love it. Protector time. So good. Yeah, but look, the, the other point here is if you have significant problems with sleeping, and, and one of the big things is sleep apnea, which all adult males have to some extent, all postmenopausal females have to some extent, and people in the other groups can also get it as well, you must talk to your doctor about any specific sleep disorders or difficulty sleeping. Yeah, no, that's really good. We love sleep, Toby and Ross. Sleep's so yep. good. Now let's move on to the final lifestyle factor that's crucial for you know regulating our mental health, and that is stress management. It goes without saying, but stress is our body's response to a demand, like the demand that's placed on us. Stress is often confused with anxiety, but stress is actually not a diagnosable mental illness because a small amount of stress from time to time isn't actually bad. It's not a problem. It can be motivating for us to get things done. I certainly love a good deadline. Helps me to just like get on with it and stop doing everything else that I don't need to be doing. But when stress is intense or it's chronic, which means it's ongoing, 
it can start to impact our physical and our mental health. And research shows that stresses have a major influence on our mood, our sense of well-being, our behavior, and of course, our health. And it's prolonged that chronic stress that really causes issues because that's what leads to the structural and functional changes inside the brain. It actually rewires the brain and changes the way that we view things and perceive things and interpret things. And it causes like overexposure to cortisol, which is a stress hormone, as well as other hormones that can disrupt almost all of the body's processes. Yep. And it can put you at increased risk for not just physical health disorders, but mental health disorders as well. A whole lot of things. I mean, the, the list is endless. Anxiety, depression, digestive issues, headaches, uh, muscle tension and pain, heart disease, heart attack, high blood pressure. I mean, you name it. Stress can, stress can do it. In fact, can I say I've been doing this job for over 40 years and I've not seen one person in 40 years of practicing medicine who had a heart attack, stroke, stent, whatever, bypass, who wasn't under stress at the time. So stress is the great precipitant. So let's look at the research in terms of its relation. Yeah, this, this is in its relationship to mental health. Um, so the, the Mental Health Foundation in the UK uh, undertook a study in 2018 that showed that the largest known studying stress levels in the UK found, wait for this, da, 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 in the past year, 74% of people have felt so stressed that they've felt overwhelmed and unable to cope. 74%. I mean, that's, that is just huge. 51% of adults who felt stressed reported they felt depressed, 61% anxious. And of the people who said that they felt stressed at some point in their life, 16%, I found this really disturbing, 16% had self-harmed and 32% said they had suicidal thoughts and feelings. That's, that's an incredible amount of people. 37% of adults who reported feeling stressed re reported also feeling lonely as a result. And we know the significant link between loneliness and a whole lot of health issues, including mental health problems. You know what's wild about all the statistics that you just reported as well is that this study was done in 2018. This was pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, yeah. So we can't even blame the global pandemic, which has significantly increased our baseline stress levels and our anxiety and depression and all the things that we've been talking about. So I'd be really interested to see what the data is showing now. You know, if 74% pre-COVID felt so stressed and that they've been overwhelmed or unable to cope, that's a lot of people. Well, can, can I also say, I, and I'm sure you've, you've uh, experienced this in your own uh, practice with people and also with, just with your friends, I think COVID's done a lot of different things, especially in the mental health space to people. The, the, the profound effects of the lockdowns of being, uh, of then being in a nanny state where we, we were told what to do by our governments, where people couldn't visit their dying relatives. Uh, people couldn't just visit. Oh, we, we had this ridiculous situation uh, at one Christmas where we, my, my daughter who lived in an area that was being locked down couldn't come to our house for Christmas, but we could go to her house for Christmas. So, I mean, so, so it was just nuts. I mean, the, the, the people who made the rules during these times were, were just, there was no common sense in it all. It was just craziness. So, and I think that has had a long-term effect on people's thinking, feeling, sleep, 
everything else, and also obviously impacting on the mental health. So I, I think the mental health issues have markedly increased post-COVID. I think it's a really important point. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we see that when people are stressed, we tend to fall back into unhealthy habits. It really impacts the way that we uh, like live our life. It worsens our physical and mental well-being. Like 46% reported that they ate too much or ate unhealthily due to stress. And nearly 30% of people report that they started drinking alcohol or increased their drinking when they felt stressed. And 16% reported that they started smoking or increased their smoking. We fall into unwanted habits because our resilience is less, our emotional regulation is less, and we're wanting to feel better. And so we turn to things that give us a hit of dopamine, which is going to be things like sugar and alcohol and nicotine and binge watching TV or whatever those things are. And they're generally not that healthy for our life, not healthy at all, really, for our lifestyle. And it's it's also very well known that the first depressive episodes can uh, often follow some major negative life event. And so the the big three are, of course, the the death of a loved one, especially your primary partner. Number two is some sort of marriage breakup, infidelity, um, and as I say all the time, the commonest cause of divorce is marriage. Um, and then number three is is moving your life. So going from an area you're very familiar with maybe moving to another state or moving to a, a suburb where you don't have the same social contact. So that's really important. And there was a study done in Denmark uh, of just over 13,000 people uh, with their first psychiatric admissions diagnosed with depression. They found more recent divorces, unemployment, suicides by, by relatives um, compared with age and match gender control. So you can see all of those dreadful life events are so powerful at precipitating an episode of depression and, and the diagnosis of a, a major medical illness often has been considered a severe life stressor and that's often accompanied by high rates of depression. And, and I make the point, for example, when people have coronary bypass grafting, about 40% of people after that have some varying degrees of depression, I think because of the change in the brain chemicals from the heart-lung bypass machine. But, but regardless of that, it, there's still that strong link between physical disorders and depressive disorders as well. And then one example, a, a meta-analysis, 24% of cancer patients are diagnosed with major depression. Yeah, it's not surprising. And it really does make sense, does it? And it's not that, you know, when we're in that state, we're not just dealing with our physical health. We're now dealing with our physical and our mental health because we're, we're not able to do the things that we used to do. We're not feeling the same, like, inside. And so, of course, it's going to impact us. So there are so many ways to manage stress and I'm, you know, I'm a huge advocate for stress management. I think we don't fit it into our lifestyles enough and I've really made a point this year to do a few of these things and it's already helped me feel good and, and you know, a lot of these things I've already implemented into my life for a long time but I sort of turned it up a notch, not even for uh, like, like it's not even been intentionally for mental health. But I have noticed that it helps my mental health, probably because I'm sleeping a little bit better. And, you know, we know that that helps everything. So the first thing that we want to do is identify what is causing us stress. And then we want to monitor our state of mind throughout the day. If you're feeling stressed, write down what's causing you, what are your thoughts, what's your mood. And once you know what's bothering you, you can then develop some sort of plan to address it. You know, is it something you can control or not? And then go from there if there are strategies to implement. But the things that I love in terms of lifestyle 
you know, changes or lifestyle uh, like routines or habits to implement. Of course, we know exercising regularly, which we heard all about in our last episode. Mindfulness and meditation. Ross, I know that you're a big meditator. You meditate 30 minutes a day. 30 minutes every day. I've yep. done it already today. It's wonderful. Love and it. I forget. And, I, and, and look, I've been doing this for 30 years and I couldn't imagine a life without it. And I, I, I would Im- advise everyone to get someone to teach them how to meditate and just to practice it. And, and I've got to say, the first six weeks I meditated, it did my head in. I, I thought, <laughs> oh, this is a waste of my time. But because I'm such an anally retentive neurotic, <laughs> I just persisted with it. And then after about six weeks, I found the benefits and I just, I, I, meditation is just such a vital part of my life. Wow. What, what shifted in the six weeks? That's amazing. I just think my brain became accustomed to it. I, there's so many studies. For example, uh, the, one of the, the great journals in cardiology around the world is a thing called Circulation, strangely. And the Circulation Journal uh, published a big meta-analysis of meditation showing that people who are regular meditators have a 50% reduction in cardiovascular disease. There's work no. with cancer as well. But I think that's the least important reason to meditate. What it does is just make you feel calmer. It makes you yeah. think better. I just think meditation is a wonderful better. thing. We sleep better. We all should be doing it. Yeah, I agree. You know, last year, sort of at the, at the end of the year, Miyagi put together a breathwork class for the staff members. And I was fortunate enough to be able to attend that. And oh my goodness. I mean, I've done breathwork before, but it was mind-blowingly good. I was like, it was the last week before Christmas, right? And I was so stressed. Like there has so much to do. My book was about to be released and it was like, it was a Friday as well. And so it was like, we were shutting down that day before Christmas came around and the list to do did not seem to be getting any shorter. And I was like, there is no way whatever's about to happen in the next hour in this breathwork class is going to change my state. Like there's just too much. But afterwards, I felt like I was in a trance. I was like, whoa, what just happened? The breathwork was so powerful and it was so like timely. And so when I say that I've started implementing new things, breathwork is one of them. I downloaded an app, it's called Open and it's just been so good. I do breathwork now every night before bed and I was so inspired by that session. Well, can I say, uh, apart from the best uh, health, health book on the market, which is of course, The Habit Revolution by Dr. Gina Cleo, the- the, one of the, one of the great books I've health books I've read is by James Nestor called Breathe. Yes. It's just such an easy to read book. It's magnificent. Yes. Isn't people it? should be reading that. Yeah. I agree. Fantastic. Really good book. I so agree. The other thing that people say will help them with reducing their stress or I guess stress management is journaling. How do you go with journaling, Ross? I'm not no, a huge fan of journaling. Oh, no, I, I am. I'm a fan of that. I think we should write things down, write down what we think, what we feel. And I think it's good for people to keep a diary. So so keep keep a diary. We, and you can keep a diary of your work, your thoughts. I think it's a very good thing to do. You know who's the master journaler is Kate Krieg, who's joined our team as the mindset coach. Kate loves journaling. I'm sure she'll probably want to do a whole episode on journaling. She's even created these journal prompts to help people journal, which is really interesting. She's one of my closest friends, but she knows how strongly I feel against journaling. And she's always trying to get me to journal. It's probably why she created these prompts. But I do know the benefit of it. I see it in the evidence. But I think it's just one of those things that you either like doing 
or you'd rather do some breath work or exercise instead. (laughs) And of course, Ross, you always talk about happiness as being the most important thing that we can really focus on, which, you know, doing the things that bring you joy is so important for our mental health. Things like seeing friends and family, doing hobbies, being in nature, playing with your pet, um, hanging out with your kids, reading a book, whatever it is, indulge in a moment that gives you joy and let yourself do that. Prioritize it if you have to, because it is so important. And I think it's often one of those things. It's like, if it's not work and it's not responsibility, then it's not in the diary. But I am a big fan of actually scheduling in playtime or some joy time. Well, can I can I say that uh, my wife had this um, this this beautiful just just a beautiful text in a in a frame that said, "Find joy in the ordinary." I did ask her to take it out of the bedroom, however. <laughs> um, so. Oh my God, Ross! <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Now, Ross, you've got a disclaimer for us for the yeah. past two episodes. Yeah, the, the past two episodes, we've covered so much around nutrition, exercise, stress, and sleep, and these are designed to help help the listeners make positive change in, in their lifestyles. But please know it's so important that if you do suffer any of these mental health issues, you should be seeking help for a professional. This is generic advice. We're not giving you specific advice about your situation because we're not your doctors, we're not your therapists. So please, um, getting support from a GP or a counsellor or a psychologist, even considering medications, if that's what your professional uh, health professionals recommended, it's really important part of mental health management. So please, if if you uh, seek help, if you need it, uh, please, please do so. And of course, these if these episodes have triggered anything for you and you need to speak with someone now, please know you can rings lifeline for example calling one three eleven fourteen. so it's really important that you realize this is generic advice very good advice but it's generic advice thanks ross now before we finish up today's episode we've got a member question to answer which is for you dr ross and it's from Kay, who says i'm on blood pressure tablets and wanting to get off them hence my joining miyagi well done Kay. great decision How do you know if blood pressure is back to normal by being on this program or because of the tablets? The last check at the doctor's was normal. What would you say, Ross? Yeah, look, uh, it really, again, this really depends. I don't know anything else about the rest of Kay's history. But, but for example, if she has significant health issues, she's had heart disease, she's had kidney problems, she's diabetic, then typically they also need medications. Now, let me say, as I say all the time, this is so important – Everything is 80, 10, 10. 80% is lifestyle. So there are five things people can do to reduce their blood pressure very quickly. One is to reduce their their belly fat. Get down their um, waist circumference is number one. Number two is three to five hours of exercise. Number three, avoid sugar and salt. Number four, keep your grog down. And number five, manage stress. If you can do all those things well, and certainly these are things we help you with in Miyagi, what, what we're talking about here is that may be enough to control your blood pressure, but it's not always enough. And sometimes the medications are still necessary. So how does Kay know if she can or cannot come off medications? Well, it's very simple. She can have a blood pressure checked. If she's not at particularly high risk for any major diseases, apart from the fact she needs blood pressure pills, go off the medications under her doctor's supervision. And if her blood pressure stays low and and where, where we want it to stay is somewhere around 120 over 80, 
They're the re- they're, so if it's still staying at 120 over 80, she probably doesn't need medications. But it's, it's trial and error to see what works for Kay. What works for Kay may not work for you or me. So every piece of advice here is individual for that particular person's situation. Solid, solid advice, Ross. Thank you for that. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode on Eat, Live and Move with Miyagi. We would love for you to subscribe so that you can keep having us in your ears. And that's all from us. Thank you so much for being here. And we'll see you again next week for more conversations with me, Dr. Gina Cleo, and my co-host, Dr. Ross Walker. Bye. Bye.